Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Hello and welcome to Home Education Matters and today I'm joined by Amanda Goodchild and we are going to be discussing the Charlotte Mason approach to home education and just to learning in general. So I'm quite looking forward to this podcast because I don't know a lot about the Charlotte Mason approach and I'm hoping by the end of this I'm going to be an expert and I could go on mastermind and answer all the black chair questions about the Charlotte Mason approach. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Amanda. Do tell us a little bit about your home education journey so far. Okay, so, um, well, I'm originally from New Zealand, and I've been living here in the UK for 16 years. And I remember when I was growing up in New Zealand, I always thought, oh, wouldn't it be so amazing if uh, I could one day live in the UK, because I love history and all the cultural things. And New Zealand is, you know, it's a beautiful country. It's from a landscape or outdoors perspective, it's just outstanding. But it doesn't have the same kind of cultural history that the UK does. So I always kind of wanted to explore that and then I found myself accidentally marrying a Brit and um, living in the UK and we had our kids and we sent them off to school. I'm intrigued by how you can accidentally marry someone. Well (laughs) 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 just fell into the church. Yeah yeah kind of no it was uh, it was it's a crazy story but anyway so when I had children I, I said I would never ever homeschool them ever and I sent them off to school and they had a pretty happy time. I mean, our school was fantastic. I couldn't really complain. I was very involved. I was on the board there. And so I got to to learn a lot about the education system and how it works and things like that. And then I just realized that I felt we were very much on this rat race and the schooling years were flying by and high school was kind of just around the corner or secondary school as we call it here in England. And I just realized that, do you know what? I had all these things that I wanted to do in the UK and I hadn't got around to doing them because life was just so busy. I hadn't been to Shakespeare's Globe. We hadn't been to the Tower of London. Um, There's just so many things that just life was so busy. And I began to feel like, what if we never got around to doing those things? Because school and and work and all those things just kind of took over. And my husband and I lead a church as well. So we're quite tied in on the weekends. We can't go away as freely as some other people might do. And I just had this thought that what what if we only get a few more years here and what if we moved? I don't want to miss the chance to actually really kind of suck the juice out of the orange that to use a food analogy. Um, that it's worthy, worthy of the globe that, that yeah, metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, that this country has to offer. And uh, I wasn't primarily thinking about education so much because I said I was kind of happy with the school, but more a lifestyle and just wanting to make sure that we had the chance to really just explore, be more explorative, get out more, see more, do more. And my plan was to kind of put them back into the school system maybe a year or two later. And then uh, as we as we got as we moved on with things and I actually discovered the Charlotte Mason education, I realized that that's what I always wanted. That's the education I wish I had had. And as I kind of stumbled into it after we made this decision to take them out of school, I thought, oh, I really love this. We really love this. So we haven't sent them back. And that's been four years now. 
And you've you've got quite a few children, so I'm guessing that the school run for you was quite monopolizing when it comes to time, and you know, just you 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 say that you're kind of in this kind of rat race kind of thing, and I think. I mean, I had my children in school very briefly, like a little Montessori school, very briefly, um, part time. And I remember it was just such a rush. You know, everything was a rush. The mornings and then you'd have this weird lull when they're in school for a few hours where you just thought about them anyway. And then you would pick them all up again. It all just seemed like a constant sort of like flurry. Yeah, the mornings were definitely stressful for us. No matter what I tried to do, we never got there on time. And I would find myself shouting in the car almost every single day why are we late again? And I actually didn't enjoy that. <laughs> and that was my kind of parting emotional comment to them as we were, as I waved them out the school gate. And then when I picked them up, normally by the time we left the car park, they were arguing and fighting with each other and they were just tired. And so the time we would spend together really wasn't good quality time because it was either frantically getting ready or landing at the end of the day with everyone's pent up emotions that they'd been holding on to suddenly exploding on me. So, um, yeah, but <laughs> it yeah. is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. So I can see that actually there were elements of just school taking over. It just kind of taking over your life. And so not only did you not have the family life you wanted, but you didn't get to ch- get the chance to absorb the, the the culture of England, whatever that may yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we live down in Kent um, and, yeah, we're quite close to London so we can get on a train and, and go up there. And, and truly, the, the museums up there are world-class, and the fact that so many of them are free is truly outstanding. And it's very easy to take that for granted, I think, when you grow up uh, in this country. But having come from another one, I think I really realised that there's so much on offer here, and I don't want them to miss out on the chance to actually take advantage of it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we did make the choice. We agonized over it for about 18 months. So it wasn't something that we decided to do on a knee-jerk reaction. But in the end, the desire to just actually carve out a different path and and not just be stuck on this rat race forever um, was too compelling to ignore. So we just took the plunge. And you took all children out. You weren't tempted to leave the older ones in or anything like that? No, so at the time, the oldest was a near five, uh, and she's now finishing up year nine. So it's been quite a transition, really, from primary school into um, midway through secondary school. And the youngest was in preschool, but I decided, well, we have to take him out as well because, obviously, we want to be able to go away whenever we want to go away. We want to hop in our caravan, and we can't have one one in the school system just really wouldn't work for the lifestyle that we were aiming for. So did you find that you had adopted, kind of intuitively adopted a home education approach that you then later found out was Charlotte Mason? Or did you find the Charlotte Mason approach and then then sort of use that as, as your route into home education? I would say it was probably about six months in that I started to properly get to grips with it. But at the same time, there was something... Um, Basically, when we, when my husband and I were trying to decide, do we do this, do we not? And I was looking on the internet, as you do, trying to get inspiration and ideas. And YouTube just put up a, a video which said, uh, UK, I think it was UK, age 13, Charlotte Mason homeschool routine. And I thought, oh, I've never heard of that before. And I just watched this 13-year-old girl just literally talk about her routine doing the homeschool uh, Charlotte Mason philosophy. And 
I got to the end of that video and I thought, oh my goodness, this is what I want. <laughs> so uh, then I started researching and finding out more and it did take a while for all the pieces to fit because it's not as simplistic as say um, a child-led learning or, or unit studies. Like there are quite a lot of components, but the more I've come to understand it, the more actually I do grasp the simplicity as well. So I'm pleased I put the work in to, to learn more about all the detail because once I've got that, I feel quite confident to then to change it and make it my own and adapt it to suit our family because I know what the end game is, what's the main goal we're aiming for here. And if I want to change a particular element because that's what's good for us, then I feel free to do so. It reminds me of when people learn to paint and they always say you need to learn all the rules and how to do it properly, properly in inverted commas, before you can adapt it and do it your own way. And it sounds like it was a little bit that way where you kind of needed to know all the, all the rules and then you could adapt it to your, your own journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and everyone I know who's uh, uses the Charlotte Mason method to some degree um does adapt it there's very very few people who stick to the the rules as you say or the prescriptive this is how it was done 100 years ago everybody is making it their own and modernizing it because it is primarily a method and a philosophy rather than a strict curriculum or um yeah you you can be quite free and i i, I appreciate that so you mentioned that there's a kind of sim a simple version and then there's a more detailed version so tell us first of all the simple version for those of us including myself that don't know an awful lot about it okay so i would summarize um the real heart of the charlotte mason philosophy is about um spreading a feast for the child in terms of ideas and experiences and then letting them engage with that feast however they choose to so imagine spreading you know you invite someone for dinner and you put on the table you don't just put baked beans and baked potatoes you put an amazing array of interesting creative yummy food on the table like but a then buffet. you yeah, like a buffet yeah and it's it's beautiful and it's outstanding but you don't go and start dishing up uh everybody's plate for them you let them put what they want on their plate and if they like a certain dish and they want more of it than they can. Or if they just want, you know, to try and sample something and they don't particularly like it and they don't want more of it, they won't. And I think that's really the most simplistic metaphor I can give is that you we really do want to give the child the opportunity to experience a real broad array of things that the world has to offer and to engage in conversations that they might not otherwise naturally be drawn into unless they were kind of invited into that conversation. But we're not trying to prescriptively determine what the outcome is going to be. So there isn't a set, like, you know, in normal school, you might learn science and there's a test at the end to say, have you memorized or understood these particular concepts? And if you have, you get a grade. If you don't, you don't. How we would approach it or how Charlotte Mason would encourage you to approach it is, you want to give the child the most interesting, um, life-giving way of thinking about that scientific topic. And for her and her day, it was living books. That was That's all they had 100 years ago was books. And, and good literature and good books still do form the foundation of what most Charlotte Mason educators would do. But instead of testing the child on, you know, 
20 questions to work out, have you mastered all this? We would give a very open-ended uh, question. So it would be something more like, tell me what you've learned and you found interesting about this aspect. So then it's really up to the child to say, what meaning have they gained from this aspect of the feast of learning and ideas that you've put in front of them? So, so we're not great. Kind of guide the child. So you wouldn't say something like, say, if you put, uh, I don't know, like a like a, a work of art in front of them, um, you wouldn't sort of say, oh, do you think it's interesting how the painter has used colour to to show the sort of good characters and bad characters. You wouldn't prompt in that kind of way. No, you would try really to, to see what comes out of the child's own, own thought and own process. Sometimes, uh, obviously, the younger they are, I think the more prodding that they sometimes find helpful. Um, but, no, you really are, you're really looking for the child to engage with it on their own terms and internalise the meaning for themselves. Um, but it's different to say a child-led learning approach in that you you are putting in front of them certain subjects, as I said, things that they might not otherwise choose, um, and so that they are being exposed to a really broad range of topics. So, for example, children would do a Shakespeare play every term from quite a young age, but they're not doing it the way that you would do it at school, where you basically take one play for two years and learn it to death and interrogate every single sentence that, you know, um, and then have to write a big essay on it. Um, for Charlotte Mason, Shakespeare was to be enjoyed, to be delighted in, and that there is, there's just moral things that you ponder once you've got that story in your heart and your mind. So my boys, who are 10 and 8, we they take part in our Shakespeare play each term, but it's obviously at an 8-year-old and 10-year-old level. Um, but they absolutely love it, and they I've just been really surprised at how much they've enjoyed that. So would you say that the main difference between the Charlotte Mason approach and the unschooling approach is that when you're producing this kind of buffet of ideas, buffet of resources for the child, you, you control their learning to a degree by what you choose to put out? Yeah, I would say so. Um, the older they get, the more the children have a say over what they learn. So the books that I might be choosing for them, I will get their opinion on and consult with them. Um, but at the younger level, I'm I'm more hands-on in uh, choosing what they're going to be learning from. But even then, I'm still trying to tailor it to their interests as much as I can because I know that will probably gain the most meaning. So, for example, my 10-year-old son, he loves he just loves the ocean. He loves the sea. So for his geography book in the summer, I was really trying to hunt for a good kind of story-based book where there's a narrative, um, there's a character, and there's some exciting things happening on the ocean that's going to teach him about navigation and mapping and all that. And I was in a, a charity shop and I saw this book, and to be honest, it wasn't aimed at children at all. It wasn't aimed at adults, but it was the story of a teenage guy who in the 60s went on a dinghy all the way over to France and then up to Norway and just the crazy adventures they got up to on this dinghy. Um, and I thought, well, that's that's going to be his geography book. Well, one of them anyway, because he's going to be learning about the maps and all that goes with the, with the oceans. But it's a true story. It's someone who's inspiring. Um, and none of the other children will probably read that book because I don't think it's interesting enough for them. Um, for him, that was just a good choice for for the geography, oceanography kind of uh, 
plate on the table, so to speak. I wonder if that's where Living Books comes in, because I also bought a book for my son when he was about 10, and it was a David Dimbleby book, and it was about battle, like sea battles or seafaring, because he he really liked the ocean as well, and he liked that. And then I discovered about two years later that he told me that he'd learned all his swear words from this book because there was lots of speech of sailors, yeah. <laughs> and I had not checked the book because I just thought, oh, it's a factual book and it's by a yeah, Dimbleby. Yeah. It must be, you know, it must be fun. But he learned like an entire array of swear words from this one book alone. And I'm guessing yeah. that's where your choice of books comes in. You mentioned living books. So would you be able to define what a living book is for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So it's basically the opposite of a textbook. Um, Obviously, some children maybe do love textbooks, but we're not just trying to give dry facts and a list of, of information. A living book is really just one which brings that subject alive for the reader, where you can hear the author's voice, that they're passionate, that they're excited, that somehow you connect with the author because you can you can hear their heart in it, um, which you just don't get in a textbook, you know. Um, but it also, most of us remember stories more than we remember facts. So a lot of the information or the, the facts that we do want to get across is presented in the story form as much as possible, especially when they're younger. And so my young, my boys who are eight and 10, they read a lot of, story-based books but they are quite advanced in their vocabulary and at a literary level but we can't underestimate the power of a story whether it's a Greek myth or about some Roman battle or King Arthur all of those stories actually just live in the mind when the facts can slowly filter out of our brain you know I can hardly remember much of what I studied at school, but a lot of the stories that I heard, I can still, they still remain with you. And I think that's really what we're trying to do with the living book is find one that is going to ignite their child's imagination as much as just give them the facts. Well, that's interesting because my daughter at 13 wanted to do classical civilization and she started this course and it was really popular and I couldn't work out why it was so popular. And all the children on the course knew a huge amount about the Greek myths. And then I discovered it was because they'd all read Percy Jackson. And so I bought her the box set of Percy Jackson and she read all the Percy Jacksons. But she she had read a lot of what I would consider to be uh, quality literature when it comes to Greek myths. She'd read Roger Llewellyn Green or whatever his name was and 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 a lot of the and and actually a lot of the original a lot of the original yeah. Greek myths and Rome and Roman stories and I wonder where is there an element with living books where the quality of the writing and the kind of quality of the whole the whole sort of book experience matters I think so um but it's also can be unique for each child because just as it is for adults, you know, we can both, two people can pick up the same book and it could be of an equal kind of literary quality, but one person just finds it more interesting than another. And so um, we can never assume that just because one book really ignited one person or one child that the other child is going to love it to the same degree. That doesn't mean that I won't make them read it if I think that it is the best book on the subject and the topic. Um, but, yeah, it's, I find it really interesting, actually. Some books that I 
I kind of maybe assume, oh, my child's going to love this, and then they actually don't. And then another one that I didn't think they would enjoy, they're really into. <laughs> so we can't predict because of that that personality that is unique for each child. So if a child really loved, you know, you mentioned about how important stories are, and if a child really loved the Percy Jackson literature, or whatever you want to call it, let's call it literature, right? And they And another child really liked Homer, you know reading homer is there is there in the charlotte mason approach a kind of preference or i'm, I'm trying to avoid using the term snobbishness because i yeah. will i'm happy to avow that i am an outrageous literature snob so you yeah. know i'm i'm as guilty of it as anybody but is there an element where in actual fact although it's good for the child to be hooked into a story really the quality of the storytelling matters as well or matters more in fact yeah, she certainly Charlotte Mason would say so. She's she said that children don't have time to waste on anything but the very best books that we can find for them. And she had this phrase called twaddle, which I haven't looked such into too much. Such a was British phrase. Was she British? Phrase, yeah, she was. British yeah, it is British. Yeah. So basically, we we don't want to diminish a child's personhood and capacity for greatness by giving them unworthy books she would absolutely say that um but it is subjective and you know um and in my personal case i find i've got a bunch of books which are this the lesson material that we're using and i i make sure that that is of a very high standard but then when we go to the library i let them choose what they want to read for their own sake so there's some books that they've just read a hundred times and that in my opinion would probably fall under the twaddle and uh, maybe charlotte mason wouldn't approve but i don't mind um as long as when it comes to the actual the intentional learning that we're trying to do with the subject i'm confident that the actual book that they're working with is, is of a high quality so it's a little bit like if your child eats one meal a day and you know it's really healthy, then it doesn't really matter what the second meal is because you've ticked off all their five a day with the one meal. Oh, yeah, kind of. Or you could think of it like um, some books are like roller coasters. They're fun and exciting, but they don't stretch you. They don't demand much of you. And if all we ever did was kind of have those entertaining books, then I think that would be a problem. But there is a place for having a book which isn't, an easy read and it's fun and it's not demanding as long as we also have those books which do stretch the child and are bringing them a much bigger vocabulary than they would otherwise naturally maybe experience if they just stuck with the ones that they wanted. I think it was Aristotle who said that it's all very well having really short-term pleasures but actually the the pleasures that give you a long-term pleasure but maybe aren't pleasurable in the process have value maybe a deeper value than the others and you need a mixture of them perhaps as a society we're not the best at having these particularly with children i'm terrible for if they're not enjoying something i sort of immediately think even though i know the goal is good i immediately think oh, what what could they enjoy the process of as well but I, I get the impression that with charlotte mason there's a certain element where you know that it's the right approach and you know that it's got a that it will have a good result and so there's you know you sort of work through maybe heavier books or books that the child may not find immediately engaging because you know that it's worthwhile in the end. Absolutely. And I have seen that stretching process happen where at the beginning of the book, it was quite intense. They needed my input, but six months later, they could confidently read it without me. Um, and 
yeah, it just it needed a bit of time. And I, I just have to work out, you know, of these books that they're, they're going to be reading, which are the ones that they are going to need me to help get into um, and which are the ones that I know that they can just pick up and run with themselves. So I, I, and a key thing I, I probably do need to say is that an essential part of the the method is that you don't just read the book, but you have to get the child to tell back in their own words, what they have taken from it. So when we talked about letting the child kind of engage with the book or the piece of art or the piece of music or whatever it is that you're feasting on, so to speak, they have to internalize it by communicating it back. And it's that process of them then deciding, okay, what am I going to say about what I've just read? That is, is a really important part of the learning. If all they do is just read the book and then they close it and don't actually have to then do something with it, it, it the knowledge doesn't really go in deep. So in the younger years, the, the children will orally narrate back. So they might read a, a fairy tale and then I would say to the child, now, can you tell me the story of Hansel and Gretel? Um, or whatever, whatever the story might happen to be. And this is where they're really developing their creative writing skills and they're developing their ability to articulate their thoughts, but it's not uh, the same as getting them to do it creative writing. So I know at school they really focus on creative writing from a young, young age, but in the Charlotte Mason approach they don't do that. She separates out the skills of learning to write your letters and how to spell and how to um, punctuate the mechanics of writing, as it was, is a separate thing. And the creative storytelling, the child's own voice or finding their voice, that's done verbally while they're young because in her experience, it was too many processes for a young child to do well all at once. And I, I definitely do agree with that. We interrupt this broadcast to remind you to like and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to join our Home Education Matters Facebook group, where you can find details on all our podcasts, any links or resources mentioned, chat to our guests, request upcoming podcasts, and even come on the podcast yourself. Do join us over there. So the younger children, they develop their creative voice by talking. And then once they've mastered their handwriting and they can write with stamina and it doesn't hurt, and they don't cry and complain about it, then when they're about 10 or 11, that's when they start actually writing down their narration. So rather than just talking them, they'll begin to write them down, but we do it slowly. So my 10-year-old, he actually much prefers typing. So he might have 12 books that he's working through in the week and two or three of them, instead of just talking with me about them, he will be writing it down, but he likes to type it. Um, so as they get older, they get more competent at their own original composition and their own original writing. But in the early years, um, they just do this uh, approach is called copy work, which is just literally copying an expert piece of writing. And by doing that, the child has to give their attention to the spelling, making sure that they're spelling it correctly, they're punctuating it. They're not guessing how to spell because they are copying what's in front of them. Um, but by doing this process every day, just 10 minutes over several years, they do become quite competent writers. And once they can confidently write, then you find that they've got a lot of ideas and they're used to putting them into sentences and communicating them orally. It then becomes quite a simple process to begin to communicate that in written form. So they actually build up 
their ability to write mechanically alongside their ability to create stories and hear their own voice both mentally but also orally and then the two get combined together when they're older sort of early teens yeah absolutely right so yeah she took all the pressure off the younger children to try and do all those things simultaneously and um yeah I've seen the fruit of that in my children now after a couple of years so my 10 year old now um, he's got some great ideas and he can type out a 2,000 3,000 word story but he he wouldn't be writing that by hand but also he is using good punctuation and good spelling simply because he's been practicing this habit of just copying someone else's expert writing and there is something to be said for imitation is a really powerful way of learning if that's all a child ever does then obviously that's a problem but when you're just dealing with mechanics like how to spell how to punctuate and what a sentence structure kind of work what works for a sentence they don't need to do that in a creative way they can just use their own voice for for the creative writing when they're young i think one thing that i've one sort of perhaps misconception or preconception that I've had of the Charlotte Mason approach is that because of the focus on what I would call classical literature or living books or, you know, something like that. And then also the copywriting, which are probably the only two things I knew about the Charlotte Mason approach. Oh, really? It always felt to me slightly old fashioned or perhaps I would just, it was better to call it quite classical as an approach to education. But you mentioned there that your son prefers using, prefers typing things up. Is there much incorporation of screen use, tech use, that kind of thing? I think it all comes down to the parents. So I, I utilize it as much as I can. And I think because I've got four children, I need them to be as independent as possible. <laughs> um, so I'm always looking for anything which will aid that independent learning. So, um, for example, when we first started out, I was trying to teach them all maths using British National Curriculum workbook, maths, no problem. And I was split four ways and it was a nightmare. And then eventually I just thought, why don't we find an online solution? And I decided to just jump in with Khan Academy because it was free and they all seemed to enjoy working with it. And I haven't looked back really. It's been fantastic for them. So we use that for maths. Um, they do language learning online. We we learn Hebrew together doing on a YouTube channel, fantastic YouTube channel that teaches us that. They do Duolingo. There's another app they use for learning Te Reo Māori, which is the indigenous language of New Zealand where I'm from. Um, so, yeah, if, if I can, and piano even, all my children learn the piano through online lessons um, with Hoffman Academy, which I have to just give a plug for. It's fantastic. Would not have been able to teach four children piano without Hoffman Academy. Um, so I think it, there's so many opportunities to bring in the, the tools that are available to us in the 21st century, which just would not have been available um, 100 years ago. But as when you know what the end goal is for as the parent, what is it you actually really want for your child? You know, and for me, I want them to have a full life. I want them to have a wide range of interests. I want them to feel that they can um, just explore and enjoy all the amazing, beautiful things in our world because there is just phenomenal amount of amazing things I want them that wonder and curiosity to remain. So any tool that is going to help me do that, I will utilize. Um, and I think personally, Charlotte Mason would encourage that. I don't think she would say you have to be stuck at, you know, um, back in, in all the ways things were done. So there's lots of opportunities to, to personalize 
to tailor to your trial and to use to use screens or just you know collaborative um, lessons. Some of my children have done creative writing on Zoom with um, a group lesson, and you know that's actually been fantastic from a social skills point of view. I thought you know being dumped in a class when you don't know the teacher and you don't know any of the children, you're expected to suddenly be creative and perform. You know that's actually quite a hard social skill. Um, they don't have to do that at school. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities to bring bring things in which are going to help. And you intimated that technology is useful because you obviously have multiple children all at different levels and all learning at the same time. And one thing that I think I have a kind of another perhaps preconception of this approach and, and just also from our chat today is it does sound quite uh, heavy work for you as the parent I mean I've done a couple of unschooling podcasts and one thing that came through very much from the unschooling approach is how hard it is on the parent on the home educator and I get the impression as well that this approach you know just the putting out the feast of resources itself must be very time consuming and 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 it's very responsive to the child you know allowing the big open questions and that kind of thing is it quite labor heavy um it's not now that I've I've I want, don't want to say like I've mastered it because none of us ever do, but let's say I'm confident in it. Um, no, it's not It's not labour intensive, actually. There, There's a various places that I go to for inspiration, um, but I basically would spend maybe a week in the summer mapping out each child's kind of progression for the year. And then I've got a template for kind of what they need to do each week. And it probably takes me half an hour a week to get organized for that week's worth of material. Um, and then, so for example, if our Shakespeare play for this come, upcoming term is The Taming of the Shrew, I just know that I need to get a copy of that, which won't take me long because I've probably already got it on my shelf behind me. If not, I'll go onto Amazon or some other used book website. And I know that that five minute process will then map itself out over the course of the term and I know what to do so I don't actually find that it does take too long and my daughters who are uh, 12 and 14 they can go for several days without needing any involvement from me at all obviously they prefer to have me involved and they like to talk about um, the books and there's some that we want to read together but if something was coming up and I just thought I don't have time to do a lot with you guys I know that they are old enough to they know what to do they know the routine um they could go for several days of learning without needing me around at all i mean that's what we all aspire to isn't it especially when you have four children yeah yeah the, the younger ones not so much they do have a habit of getting uh, easily distracted and um uh, but i don't mind that either I'm, I'm i'm relaxed as well especially if it's something they're interested in how do you find this approach works for the older children, particularly when they're getting to the age of GCSEs and things like that? Because you mentioned Khan Academy, and that's famous, famously very American, and it's quite difficult then to map to the UK curriculum. And and the beauty of the Charlotte Mason approach, from what I'm hearing, is that it puts the child's curiosity uh, center stage, and it allows them to approach the resources how they want to. And obviously, GCSEs are not like that. <laughs> if only they were and so how are you finding it now that you mentioned you've got a child who's 14 how are you finding that now with the GCSE kind of age looming you know that is a really good question because she actually started um, GCSE English literature 
last September, so the beginning of year nine, um, basically a, a small group of home ed friends that she knows were doing it and the opportunity came for her to be part of this group. And so at this moment, she is working towards that and will sit it in year 10. And I can, oh, she just doesn't enjoy it. I can see the difference 100%. She just does not enjoy pulling literature apart, analysing it and writing essays about it. Um, it's it's robbing her of all the joy. So here I am now at this uh, juncture trying to decide what do we really want for the next four years. So um, it's on the cards this week actually just to sit down with her and say, okay, these are the five or six potential pathways that we could go down for you. Depending on where you want to end up, we could do five GCSEs, we could do three GCSEs, we could do no we could just finish the one you're doing. Uh, we could look at the high school diploma from America, or we have you heard do... my podcast on that one? I have, I have. Yeah, well, at least half yes. of it. It's yeah. fascinating, yeah, it was... isn't it? it yeah, because really it actually links to the Charlotte Mason approach rather nicely, doesn't it? Because when you were talking about the Shakespeare studies and stuff, I, I was thinking in my head that would map beautifully to the high school diploma. <laughs> yeah, I just um, yes, I keep thinking. I know it's. My husband and I decided early on that we wanted to separate out the education from the qualification and prioritize the education and let the qualifications follow that. So what is the learning that we want these children to have? Um, what is the education we want? And then when we know what qualifications we need, then we go and sort them out later. Um, whereas obviously the school system puts the qualification front and center and everything is kind of channeled towards that. Um, so we're literally just asking ourselves that question at the moment. Uh, what do we want to do? What does she want to do? What are the pros and cons? If we were to continue with more of a Charlotte Mason uh, education, which she is actually grasping very well, um, she she could run with this approach very, very well for the next few years. So then it comes to converting that into some kind of qualification so for us, probably the high school diploma would be a better option. But then there is also the um, potential to apply directly to do like access courses straight into a degree program. One of my friends, her daughter, I think she did a couple of GCSEs, but she mainly uh, just because she wanted to. And then she went straight on to the access course for the Open University at 16 and now is starting her degree at 17. So I do think that there's a lot more possibilities that are coming available to everybody, a lot a lot more than there were even a few years ago. And that gives me a lot of confidence and a lot of hope. And I, I genuinely don't want to be governed by fear in these decisions. I want to do what's best for the child and we'll find a way to make it happen. At this at this point, they, you know, she does the older one doesn't know exactly what she wants to do. So I feel like I want to keep the options open. Um, but certainly for us, the potential of just doing an access course and straight into a degree means we could bypass GCSEs altogether and just seeing how she's enjoying, not enjoying <laughs> the GCSE one she's doing at the moment is genuinely making me question whether we want to, to go down that route. So it's quite helpful to have dipped our toe in the water um, just a little bit with this one GCSE. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that GCSEs are a phenomenon because in actual fact I, I admin the homeschooling UK group and on Saturdays we allow tutor adverts 
Oh, yes. And, and an English tutor came on very helpfully and shared a template for uh, the creative writing tasks in the English language and literature GCSEs. And it was an extremely formulaic template about say this, use these words, use this punctuation. And it was a really helpful template because my daughter's doing GCSEs and I know exactly how they work. They're very, very formulaic. But I did actually, I couldn't resist posting a comment saying, you know, where's the creativity in creative writing? Because <laughs> it just gets sapped out. Even the actual subject of creative writing is the least creative aspect that you can have now. Everything gets, everything it becomes what the examiner wants to see. And there's no actual creativity in creative writing anymore. It's a very depressing thing. It is. And it just shows that what the real priority that we're aiming for is to make life easy for higher education and employers, because that is the main goal of standardization, isn't it? It's basically to make life simple for employers or for universities, but it really isn't what's best for our children. I don't think so. Making everybody try and achieve the same thing at the same time. And from a broader perspective as well, I don't think a nation is served well when you try and get everybody to learn the same thing the same way at the same time. When you think of the full gamut of knowledge that exists and we're basically making the next generation learn about 0.5% of that, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think it's really helpful to have some children who who really major in certain things or um, learn more about philosophy or economics or just all sorts of things from a younger age. Um, I don't think that the country is served well by forcing everybody into this kind of homogenous way of learning. And that's the school system summed up in a nutshell. What's it like in New Zealand? What's the school system like over there? Um, it's Well, it's been 16 years since I've been over there. Um, there was a big headlines this week um, saying that literacy and numeracy are falling off the edge of the cliff and no one can work out why. I, I don't think it's as academically rigorous as the UK, certainly in primary school. Um, but they would, New Zealand children spend a lot more time outside. They don't really wear school uniforms as much, although certainly when I was a child, we never wore school uniform. Um, some schools have a barefoot policy. <laughs> well, you have and to it, be barefoot or you're not allowed yeah, to be barefoot. Pre pretty much barefoot all day, yeah, even in class. Um, so uh, it's a mixed bag. So um, how would you... How would you sum up the Charlotte Mason approach if you could sum it up in like, I don't know, three words or one sentence or something like that? What would you say it is? I would say Charlotte Mason summed it up in three phrases. <laughs> Let me Yay. quote her. She said, education is an atmosphere, a discipline and a life. And she was talking about how the atmosphere that we live in, the home, especially because she was talking um, with home educators, is a huge part of who the child becomes. And so even things like the music that you play or just that feast that you put in front of the child as far as things that they can be engaged with and interact with is part of that atmosphere. Um, the discipline is all about just the habits that we form do shape us. So she would always encourage a high level of attention, but for example, short lessons. So it is a, is a key staple of, of her philosophy that you give very short lessons, but you expect a high degree of attention and focus, but only for a very short amount of time, sometimes five minutes. <laughs> um, 
And then the the final point there, education is a life, is really the fact that we, we're trying to develop really well-rounded people who understand living ideas, who engage with ideas. She talked about the mind needing to feed on ideas as much as the body needs to feed on food. And if you can nourish the child's mind with worthy ideas and interesting ideas and the world is full of things to uh, to think about, then that is really the life that the child will grow into and the the fullness of the life that they, that, um, they will grow into. One quote she said here is, the question is not how much does the youth know when he has finished his education, but how much does he care? And about how many orders of things does he care about? In fact, how large is the room in which he finds his feet set? And therefore, how full is the life he has set before him? That's beautiful. I think that sums up home education as well so beautifully, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. I love that image of how big is the room that their feet are sort of set in. Because I always think that as parents, uh, particularly home educating parents, I think, it's about um, trying to create as many options and possibilities and potential for our children as possible. So never shutting off roots, always opening up possibilities. And I think that quote sums it up very beautifully. Yeah. No, no, I've learned a lot um, and I've still got a lot more to learn about um, her method and philosophy, but I've grasped enough to feel like I can confidently make it my own and um, represent it the way that it's going to work for our family. So, Amanda, you're clearly a Charlotte Mason expert. So I wonder whether you've got any resources you would recommend or maybe I think you've written a book or you've, you have a, a website or something. So do you want to tell us a little bit about those things? Okay, so yes, I, I wrote a book last year um, for people who were trying to decide whether home education was right for them. And it's called, So You're Thinking About Homeschooling, 10 Questions to Ask Yourself Before Making the Leap. And in that book, I just walk you through 10 different questions that maybe you wouldn't naturally think to ask yourself, just to help pull apart what you really want. And um, that book is available on Amazon. And I also, I created a open and go copywork program inspired by the Charlotte Mason method. And basically it's something that your children can do independently that do doesn't need the parent. And I found when I was starting out that I love the copywork ideas we've talked about earlier, but trying to get uh, four children to know what they were meant to be doing every day just became a total headache. So I wanted something that they could open every day and knew exactly what they needed to do without me. Um, and I thought, I actually can't find something out there so I thought I would make my own and then I thought probably other people would appreciate it as well I can't be the only one who needs this um, so I've created a program called Copywork Cave and it's basically a downloadable pdf that you can print at home and I've specifically designed it so that it doesn't use too much ink because we all know how frustrating it is <laughs> printing things that rain our ink carpet um, and each collection will feature a different mix of literature, of quotes. Um, the older years include things like essays and speeches from famous moments in history. Um, the older ones also will use Shakespeare um, excerpts as well. So there's a whole mix of literature that children are, are writing out poetry. Um, and every day it's just literally laid out so the child can see, I'm copying this poem today and I know where to copy it. And then the next day they can start it all over again, but with something new and something different. So I've got three different levels. Um, level one, which is kind of six to eight year olds. 
level two, which would be more eight to 10, and then level three, which is 10 to 13, 14. Um, so it's about finding what kind of level your child is right, uh, you know, is was will suit. And then I've got two different versions of that. I've got a classic version, and then I've also got a Christian version, which includes a passage of um, scripture from the Bible for those who want that. And then I've got UK and US spelling for all of those different options. <laughs> so I, I really have tried to to um, think of everything that might be helpful to a, a wide variety of different people. And the website is called copyworkcave.com. And I have actually, five minutes before this podcast, created a discount code <laughs> just for anyone who's listening if they want to use it. So I've created it as POD20, P-O-D-20. And that would give 20% off any of the collections on the website. Fabulous. We love a discount code. Does the copy work? Is it where you have the piece of writing and then underneath it you have lined lined things that they can write on, basically? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in the, the younger two levels, the space for the writing is a bit bigger. And then the older level, it's a smaller um, font size that we're expecting the child to write at. And how long do they tend to spend on that a day so how how long would it take say a you know like a 10 year old or something to do their copy work using your system yeah well it depends on the child's writing stamina but charlotte mason's instruction was 10 minutes a day maximum any more than that and the child's losing focus and they're getting bored and tired so i've tried to select passages poems um paragraphs from speeches which will take around 10 minutes for the average writer but again every child is different so it's hard to predict i know um my older children because they're just so fluent with their writing now they will easily do their copy work in 10 minutes i do have a youtube channel if anyone would like to see um i break down for example my um daughter's full routine of what it looks like for her um in year eight on there and year seven so it goes into a bit more detail about you know what a typical week would look like um and my homeschool uh Sorry, my YouTube name is Homeschool Hack. So if you Google that and you see me, Amanda, I'll be there to say hello. I don't know how many home educators are on YouTube, but I feel like there ought to be more. I think we need to be populating YouTube. I think YouTube so. Right? I really do think so. I think, um, I don't know, when I came to this country, I found the British people in general were a little bit more reserved about putting themselves forward and feel that they need to be an expert to even say something. So uh, whereas Americans are a little bit more happy to just have their opinion for the world, aren't they? <laughs> In actual fact, it's interesting you say that because I think looking back at my podcast episodes, like a good proportion of them are with Australians, Kiwis, Americans, Canadians. Actually, I think they are they are sort of disproportionately represented. Maybe it's because you're more confident about putting your voice out there. Maybe, but anyway, I think we should uh, encourage encourage as many of us from the UK who are doing it here in England to uh, share our experience because we do all learn from each other and you, there's always something you can glean from someone else, isn't there? That's exactly why I'm doing the podcast. So <laughs> Yeah, and that's great. So thank you so much for doing it. It's a real service to people, I think, to just to keep stimulating our minds with new ideas and new ways of thinking. Well, I love a podcast and there weren't that many out and so I thought, well, you know, I'll just pretend I'm Antipodean and go yeah. out there and put my Excellent. voice out there. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. It's been really lovely speaking to you. And um, any links that Amanda mentions, I will be putting on our Facebook group, Home Education Matters. So feel free to come on there and find the links uh, for any of the things that she's mentioned today. Thank you again, Amanda. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day. Bye.